Okay, so it's time to do another one of our uh, Q&As. Welcome to another podcast from your friends at Books of the Year. Uh, the book that we're talking about, uh, well, in the other podcast, we're dealing with To Kill the Truth uh, by Sam Bourne, who turns out to be, you'll never guess who. Who is it, though? Jonathan Friedland. Is it, is it that Jonathan? I, wow. I mean, for years, I just thought it was someone else. Sam Bourne, obviously. Yeah. It's a, yeah. It is <laughs> a great name. Hello, Jonathan, how are you? Hello, I'm well, thank you, Simon. I thought you were going to stop being Sam Bourne. Well, uh, that did happen for one book. And then the publishers discovered that there was a Sanborn audience that needed it to say Sanborn on the cover. Okay. Does anyone call you Sam? Uh, it does occasionally happen. I, twice I have arrived at a hotel late at night and said, you know, Friedland, room for one. It's been reserved by publishers. And they've said, very sorry, Mr. Friedland, we have nothing for you here. And then I've eventually said, and it's so embarrassing because it sounds like you think you're in a Bond movie. I've gone, try Mr. Bourne. <laughs> And then suddenly, welcome, Mr. Well, Bourne. Oh, Mr. Yes, Bourne. You know, absolutely. <laughs> We've been expecting you. We've been expecting you. Okay, so the uh, the interview about the book will be uh, on our companion podcast to this, but the Q&A goes like this. So, Jonathan Friedland, the last book you really, really enjoyed, other than your own. No, of course. Um, over the summer, following the death of Philip Roth, I read a Philip Roth book that I'd never read, which was American Pastoral, which is really a big classic, and as a Roth fan, I should have read it. And I just plunged into it and, every, you know, the sentences are beautiful and you're in a world of his making that is so complete and it was just a complete pleasure. But I was on holiday and in the sunshine as well, so that may have influenced it, but I loved reading that. Just book. as a follow-up question to that before Matt does the next one, do you, are you ever aware of another author influencing your writing? So that if you're reading, say, Philip Roth, and you're writing, you, you go, well, that's a little bit of a Rothian sentence there. Well, imagine, flattering myself. <laughs> that would be nice. It is true that I don't read fiction when I'm writing fiction. So if I'm in the middle of a Sam Bourne book, I won't pick up another novel, and especially not a thriller, because then it does get into your head, and you can start almost unconsciously aping mm. the style of someone else. So I don't mind reading, you know, journalism or the news or even nonfiction when I'm in Sam Bourne mode, but I, it, I do put aside that. The other weird thing I have about writing, I don't know about you, but is music. I do listen to music, but it can't have words in it or vocal because that's immediately totally disruptive. Uh, as long as it's music, then it won't get into uh, changing the style. But when I'm reading over what I've written, I can't have anything. No music, no words, nothing. So there's all the... It's to do with how your brain... So I realise Matt still hasn't asked no. this question. But just on that point, <laughs> yeah. Lee, when Lee Child was on this uh, podcast a few few months ago, he was talking about the problem with, write, with music on is that music inevitably has some kind of rhythm to it. Exactly. And your writing has a rhythm to it. And he says, I can't work with one rhythm working against another. Except that's why I do it. Because I... And I choose the music very carefully... I want the rhythm of the music to influence what I'm doing. So there is some music that I think is, for, for thriller writing, has a kind of percussive, propulsive, forward motion. And so what kind of music then? What kind well, of music there, are you... There, there, it's odd this, but there is there are two or three Philip Glass soundtracks, which I use, which are so repetitive, I'm not really listening to the music, but I'm feeling the propulsion. So... Um, I didn't even know how you pronounce it, but Power Katsu, you know, it was the sequel to Koi Aniskatsi, that film that Philip Glass scored. Okay. And it's got, they used actually some of the music, it, it does appear in a few films. So there's a bit of it they used in The Truman Show. Okay. And they've used it in a few films and it does have a sort of compelling beat that you almost, I think the scenes get a bit more dramatic. If, if only there were a radio station about to be launched that uh, <laughs> in, involved classical soundtracks that and stuff would, like that. That would, that would be, be quite handy, Goodness me. I'm gonna a bit of a hole in the market there. <laughs> I'm going to tell now, I'm going to tell you both a joke. Go on. Relating to that. Knock, knock. Who's there? Knock, knock. Philip Glass. 
No, 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 you're going to go with it. Go <laughs> okay, with it. Go who's, with who's it. there? Knock, knock. Who's 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 there? Philip Glass. See, you can't do it after one. All right? That's not... I just got that now. That's very good. I swear I killed that a bit, didn't I? You can... Yeah, you did. But you can use that now with your Guardian friends. It's a very upmarket joke. It is quite an upmarket joke. When I was sent it originally, I wasn't quite sure what it meant, but I checked it with Kermo and he said, yes, yeah, a joke about the repetition in Philip Glass, Philip Glass's music. Yeah, brilliant. You know, he's guaranteed to use it on his new show. On his new show? Oh, this is Mark so. Kermode on, on this uh, amazing new radio station. Scala Radio. Has that started yet? Because Scala. it hasn't as we speak now, but when this goes out, it's probably, it's probably out. There's our producer one's juggling. Green, one's black. One's green, one, one's one, black. One, one, look okay. at the, both the teapots look green to me. But anyway. <laughs> That's arrived. your cup, yeah. isn't it? This, this is the most shambolic Q and A of all time. Goodness me! Uh, Have we got questions? Scala, yeah. start, Scala starts on <laughs> Monday, March the fourth. Monday, March the fourth, ten o'clock. Uh, lots of Philip Glass to come. Yes. Uh, what book, Jonathan? Do you remember being read to you as a child? I have a half memory of being read a book by Enid Blyton called Bimbo and Topsy which I can tell you nothing at all about the story, except that as a very young child, I was hooked on it enough that I then, after my... I think it was my mother who read it to me. After she'd left the room, I opened the book and started reading it myself. And so the book has acquired a sort of mythological, mythic status in my and was family she, history. And was she always reading? So in other words, every bedtime she was like, right, we were beginning at the start of Bimbo and... Uh, she was reading that book at the moment when I decided I wanted to read for myself. Right. So, okay. And, I, you know, I should really look it out and find more of it but that experience of wanting to know what happened next to the point where i've read it myself and years later my not years later my mum always went on about it saying that's the book that taught you yeah. to read so it has a special place how long do you give a book jonathan do you always finish it do you have a cutoff point so i have here t- uh, two types of reading that are relevant so if i'm doing a sort of journalistic read which is when you're sort of gutting a book you're as somebody i know puts it you're raiding the book not reading the book then um, none of that really applies because you're just sort of filleting it and and scavenging for stuff. Uh, if I'm actually reading a book properly, it is quite rare for me to give up. Uh, my agent always has the page 69 test, which my kids think must be pornographic, but it isn't. <laughs> it just means usually a book, if it hasn't closed the deal by around page 70, uh, it's not going to. And that is quite a good rule, but it's quite rare for me to give up. How old are your kids? Started. They, they, so they know this gag. They're 17 and 14 and they think it's very funny. Okay, that's fine. I thought they were going to be like three and one. <laughs> no, that would be getting weird. <laughs> now you're getting weird. Right. Um, your favourite book, obviously this ties in with uh, the book that we were talking about last week, but your favourite book on American politics? Well, a very, again, splitting non-fiction, the Robert Caro biography of Lyndon Johnson is extraordinary. It, he's still writing it. This is his become his life's work, this okay. man. And he's been writing it more or less since about two years after Lyndon Johnson stopped being president in 19... You know, so he began work on it, I think, in 1971 or 72, and he has grown old with this subject, and it's published in volume after volume. I was going to say, so how... Yeah, right. Yeah, so I mean, and it will be, you know, uh, you don't even... There are... F- how many pages? It will probably be about 2,000 pages before he's anywhere near the presidency. There's a volume called Master of the Senate. There's a brilliant book of volume about him in Texas. There is 150 pages at least describing childhood in poverty in rural Texas, which is the most brilliant account. It's like reading John Steinbeck or something about growing up dirt poor 
in Texas. So that is an incredible achievement. That is a huge monument of writing. And, uh, you know, a, there's usually not... That's one I would take away with. Mm. There's no time to read that sort of book normally. But then in terms of fiction, um, Primary Colours, people think of always the film because of mm. John Travolta mm. and everything, but it was a very good book before it started. It's very evocative for me in two ways. The first is that it's obviously a fictionalised version of Bill Clinton's campaign for president, which I did cover. As a young reporter, I was on those buses with Clinton going through Georgia and uh, Florida, etc., in 1992. So it's an account of a campaign I lived through. But the saga of who wrote it, do you remember the book was published yeah, anonymously? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was then a correspondent in Washington and was part of that whole guessing game, who wrote it, and everyone thought it was one of Clinton's own inner circle. And in the end, it turned out to be a, a journalist like us. You know, it was um, Joe Klein, uh, who was then writing for Time or Newsweek, one of them. And he wrote this brilliant book. And everyone thought, right, that's he's going to now put, a, put aside journalism and become a novelist because he's got such a good eye. But he did that and he did a sequel and then hasn't done any more fiction. Since. I suppose part, of, part of the appeal of that book was that everyone was trying to guess who exactly. had written it. And therefore, were, everyone was assuming, oh, it must be an insider. Exactly. It an insider. And, and it was one of those things where you have the fun of guessing who the minor characters are sending up. So, oh, that must be a take on that one. And the guessing game is quite fun. I've just had an idea for a, for a new book. <laughs> That's pretty good, isn't it? Is it? Is it it's going to be about... written. It's going to be something about... Come on. Broadcasting, and is it's it going to really? be written by Anonymous. Anonymous. Is <laughs> it really? You've just given us a big fat clue then. Yeah. I have. Yeah. You wait till you find out who the minor character is. <laughs> yeah. uh, do you have a favourite thriller writer? Uh, yes. Um, I bow at the feet of John Le Carre, who is just the master, really. It's a different kind of genre than almost anybody else, not just because it's a spy thriller, but it is. it's written in a way that I think... I'm just not sure if anyone else did it, it would work, really. These very elaborate roundabout plots where you really have to be concentrating and it's... I just wonder if if, if one was able to, if you handed in a manuscript as complex as that, whether agents and editors would go, mm, I just don't think the reader yeah, would stay Yeah, well, would, would that pass the sort of 69 test? Would it, you I know, wonder. because you stick with the Jean Le Carré because you know it's going to pay off in the end. That's right. But if it were a new... Jeff Le Carre, yeah. then perhaps not. Um, yes. <laughs> Jeff Le Carre. Uh, the book you'd love to step inside of? This is the question I find absolutely hardest, really. I've been trying to think if there's... See, I was never a big science fiction reader, and the one genre I could not stand was fantasy. I never... Oh, I read perhaps four oh, pages of Lord yeah. of the Rings and just didn't want to go any Please. further. Please. Do you know what I mean? So the yeah. idea of stepping inside, you know, Lion, Witch and the Wardrobe, all those, I never went anywhere near them. And as a child, I remember thinking it was something slightly wrong with me because they just didn't appeal to me at all. So I'm struggling to think of an answer to that because that, as it, the question implies in my mind, some sort of fantastic realm. And I don't think it's But really it could me. be a Le Carre, but it could be, you know, uh, a spy novel in the 1960s, you know, working for the Secret Service in East Germany. Yes. But, that's a world, isn't it? It world is a world. Creation. But in a way, if the book is good, you are stepping inside that world. But to actually live in 1961 Berlin didn't immediately appeal. Okay. But maybe that's a failure on my mind. When was the last time you used a public library? Uh, not that long ago. Um, about... But, uh, but it was a bit contrived, to be honest, because I did take my son to the library. And then I thought, you know, it's bad that I, he's never seen me use the library. So I've got to be a sort of an example. And so... So you I, pretended to be interested no, in No, and so library. I did. But it's a, it's a telling story because I borrowed All Out War by Tim Shipman. 
which is a brilliant It is a great account. Book, Sunday yeah. Times. Sunday yes. Times. Yes. And that yeah. was an example of a book which I had done initially just a journalistic read of, in the office, thumbing through, finding the bits you need, whatever, and then hadn't read it properly, and then the copy that I had, you know, in the, you know, what newsrooms and offices are like, it just wandered off. So then I thought, I'm going to read that book properly. And so I borrowed it, and then about a week later got the reminder saying you need to bring this book back and of course I didn't have time and then another week passed and I also didn't bring it back and so eventually I bought it and so that I'm a bad advertisement really so hang on you bought it from the library no I then bought and bought I went out and bought a copy oh I see so you did take it back back. to the library I paid quite a hefty fine yeah and then I bought it yeah so in the end you know it wasn't I wasn't setting a good personal example to my younger son um but books I am a I don't know whether I'm quite a fetishist, but there's something about a book. Once I've read it, I do want to own it. Your favourite autobiography? So here I'm going to be a bit personal uh, because the most recent autobiography I read was the autobiography written by my father who died in October. And he was a Hollywood biographer. He wrote more than 40 books about showbiz stars from the golden age of Hollywood, you know, Fred Astaire and... Judy Garland and Catherine Hepburn and all those people. He wrote books about them, and he published his own book called Confessions of a Serial Biographer, um, telling his story of life as a sort of showbiz journalist and other things. And my guilty secret is that I had dipped into it, but I had while he was alive, I hadn't read it properly. And so in the weeks after he died, I picked it up and I read it properly because it was very comforting to me to sort of hear his voice, which really comes through the pages of this book. It's He's telling just one cracking anecdote after another. And I had a very sort of strange realisation, which is, you know, he had a journalistic career, I'm in the middle of a journalistic career, and I just think he had more fun. Uh, he had just <laughs> the most... You know, he was around in the 60s with all these glamorous movie mm. stars and... You know, it was a time when he was doing it, when you weren't doing a press junket where you'd have 20 minutes with the movie star. You know, in his book, he goes off to Hollywood as a young British guy and suddenly he's in Jack Lemmon's apartment and he's in the car with Walter Matthau driving because there wasn't this huge edifice of publicity and there wasn't so much media. So he just had great fun at it and so I really enjoyed his book. And his name? His name is Michael Friedland. Michael Friedland, and the book is? Confessions of a Serial Biographer, Michael Friedland. Uh, Do you have a favourite travel writer? Travel writing is something I hardly read. I know fantasy and sci-fi, so we're adding to that list. Quite impatient with travel writing. Um, So my exception here is a book that, again, was in my mind, I realise there's a bit of sort of death in this conversation, which is... uh, In December, uh, the Israeli novelist Amos Oz died, and... Brilliant right novelist, brilliant journalist, really as well. But one of the book that had a massive impact on me was a volume of travel writing, really, by him, which is called In the Land of Israel by Amos Oz, and in published here in 1983, in which he travelled around Israel and the West Bank with his notebook, and he describes these encounters with these people. And it is still, it should be so out of date, that book. 35 years ago, so much has happened politically since. And yet if people say to me, which sometimes they do, because I write about the Middle East a bit, you know, what's the one book I should read on that? As a sort of primer, you won't do better than that book. It's just fantastic. Do you ever read uh, William Dalrymple's From the Holy Mountain? I've read lots of articles by him, but not read his book. absolutely amazing genuinely amazing you you would love it i mean he's, he's an astonishing writer he's anyway. a brilliant writer can we get william dalrymple on he's got a new book 
coming out. It's like a huge fat tome. And he's in India, so we'll have to go there. I have to go to him. Oh, is he the bloke on Twitter who does all the India stuff? Yes, William. Yeah, 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 he's, yeah, yeah I mean, he's yeah. he's one of those, in a previous generation, he'd have been an explorer without yeah, 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 any doubt. Yeah, Scottish yeah. aristocracy yeah. ended up in India. But From the Holy Mountain by William Dalrymple is fantastic. Superb. Uh, is there a book that always cheers you up? Uh, when I dip into a book that cheers me up. Oh, well, a book that can literally make me still laugh out loud is also second Philip Roth references, Portnoy's Complaint by Philip Roth, okay, which is just hilarious. And, you know, it doesn't have quite the free start that it had when I read it as an adolescent, um, for reasons that may be obvious. Um, but it's proper tears in the eyes funny. And so that book will always cheer me up. And not longer I did dip into it because I was weighing up whether I should recommend it to my sons. You know, the book is a comedy about masturbation, essentially. And so I thought, is it wrong? <laughs> is it wrong for me to hand this book to my child? You know, and I weighed it up and I thought before I weigh before I make my decision, I do need to remind myself of it. And, you know, it's the only book where a chapter title literally made me laugh out loud because the book examines masturbation from all different angles and you finish one whole chapter thinking he can't really say any more about this. There's a blank page and then you open the next one and the next chapter's title is Whacking Off. <laughs> <laughs> and so when, when I actually read that for the first time, it induced just tears of laughter that he's going to carry on talking about this. <laughs> it's a brilliant book. I'm not going to ask the last. Let's leave the next question. I think that's fine. It is impossible to... <laughs> <laughs> to leave the conversation uh, on a lower note than that. Uh, Sam Bourne's book is To Kill the Truth. Uh, Sam Bourne is, of course, Jonathan Friedland. Jonathan, thank you very much. Thank you. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.